0: Today we are looking at our, one of our final evidences. Um, we've got one more next week uh, as far as evidences of the Bible uh, this weekend. Um, this one uh, it has, to me, a little less weight uh, than some of the others. It's still valuable, uh, but we want to talk about what uh, archaeology and history can prove Uh, Specifically, when we're talking about history and and, and biblical events and people and places, um, we don't want to put too much stock in this uh, this evidence as a proof. Um, What can it prove? Because it is valuable. Um, What I I mean when I say that we can't put too much stock in this, um, we don't want to make more of these evidences than they do. What can be proven? about these. Okay, so, uh, correct. So what, what can be proven is that the biblical record is true. That's all that can be proven. And so an archaeological discovery cannot prove a spiritual truth. It, it can't verify inspiration. Um, to say it like this, if you think of a court of law, what are the two... Verdicts that there are in a court of law. Okay, okay, guilty or not guilty. If you're there, there is no innocent verdict. If you go to, if they say, please enter your plea. They don't say innocent. You 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 can't say innocent. You're guilty or not guilty is the two pleas that you can make. Um, and so there, there's a lot of people that end up going free in a court because. Simply, the accusation couldn 't be proven it doesn 't mean that they are innocent, some guilty people go free, uh, but the accusation couldn 't be proven and in this case, there's an accusation that the Bible is not inspired uh, that that the Bible is not accurate uh, and uh, all these various things and we can 't prove the bible 's inspired from history, but we can say that the accusation can be proven to not be true. Uh, And we would leave it up to the other more uh, potent evidences to prove the inspiration, like prophecy or various things like that. But we can know from archaeology that that the Bible is accurate. There's a guy by the name, I want to talk about a couple of men before we get into this evidence, uh, by the name of William F. Albright. He was a archaeologist uh, and he's kind of associated with biblical archaeology uh and uh he is the first he was the first gentile or we call him goyim uh the first non-Jewish person to receive the uh award called the the worthy citizen of Jerusalem award because he had done so much in 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 his archaeology and his discoveries uh Confirming uh, the biblical, or specifically the Old Testament record. That's most of where our 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 documentation of things in Palestine it has to do with uh, the Old Testament record, because that's really the 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 histories of peoples and places. Uh, so he said he he made this statement. He said there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed. The substantial historicity of the Old Testament tradition. Another archaeologist by the name of Nelson Gluick, uh, who's Nelson Gluick? He was a rabbi, so he was Jewish. He was an archaeologist, uh, just so that we know that we're not just talking about some guy that was a, a nobody somewhere. He is the guy that gave the benediction at JFK's inauguration. So, so he was a man of some significance. Um, and and he also, much like uh, William Albright, had a lot to do with with um, giving evidence and, and proving things in the Bible to be true. He said it can be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. So uh, he said, scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible so so that's quite a claim and again it doesn't prove that the Bible's inspired it just proves that it's incredibly accurate from there you can make whatever leap you want it's either this the most incredibly accurate book or not but uh, if we compare this to other books the the evidence is that you know other books don't have the same standard I mean uh, it, it, for example, if a Mormon writes to the Smithsonian, uh, because there are all sorts of stories in the Book of Mormon about uh, what was in the United States, it's a story of how you know, Christ, after he rose, came to the United States and preached uh, here and 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 all these things that were encountered, well, the man who wrote it didn't know anything about the history of the United States. It's just a, f- a bunch of fairy tales and so there's elephants and giraffes and all sorts of things in the in the United states in this in this story, and it's just really weirdly made up and uh, and so the um, the Smithsonian actually has a form letter that they send out to Mormons and says no um <laughs> there's there's never been elephants are are not native. There was never anything like this at you know uh, two thousand years ago. They have to have a form letter. Because it just it's not verifiable. But every time the Bible, every time we discover something, it's always confirming and it's on a a regular basis. And so we're going to look at four of these, um, and some are really significant, and and some you might look at not significant we 're going to actually start with something a little bit small and and here you see uh, in this picture two seals one is the what is referred to as the Hezekiah seal, and this broken one over here is uh, has the name of uh, Isaiah on it and what, here I want to talk about why this is important. why is Isaiah, why do you think Isaiah is argued against now his existence is not argued, but specifically the date. The Bible claims that, you know, and puts him around um, 700 BC. Why would that be um, argued? Okay. He was extremely accurate. So, because, the, and this is a large logical. Circular reasoning argument that that is used is well, since he was so accurate he can 't have he can 't have been at the seven hundred b c it 's so his statements are so accurate concerning downfalls of empires and and christological evidence he must have he wrote in, he must have written much later uh, and, and wrote history as though it was prophecy uh, because no one could actually be that accurate well, if they were inspired, they possibly could be uh so so this is really circular uh logic, but he says uh, uh but so, so- was this man ever really uh at the time where he says in fact, some people believe that Isaiah is a composite of of several people, kind of similar to the theories of of shakespeare um uh, that he wasn't even one person so anyway, well, let's look at that um so these two seals. Um, were actually found in a dump uh, dump site, so the the first one they found was the the seal of hezekiah a king well he 's not really disputed um, hezekiah's not really disputed, and this is just more evidence of it um, but then, ten feet away from his seal, they found this seal of isaiah and um, and it clearly has the name of Isaiah written on it and then there 's on the broken part of it. Right up near the top here, here's this word, and if the, the letter on, uh, that's on this broken part, they can't quite make it out, uh, it, it, so it's an incomplete word, but if that letter, and of course they read right to left, so, so it would be the left letter, which would be the last letter. If that is an Aleph, uh, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, then that word means prophet, prophet Isaiah. Now, it's not 100% sure what that could possibly mean. It could be like a, a location or something like that. There's a, a couple of possibilities that that word could be. Uh, but uh, it would seem highly coincidental to me uh, that, that here we have a seal uh, of another. And by the way, these are, these, these are all blown up and they're very detailed. They're only about a centimeter across. There. It's a, from a ring, taken from a ring. Uh, seal. Um, and what, what's impressive here is that even without the confirmation of this missing letter, it's extremely conclusive. I mean, you've got Hezekiah and Isaiah. Now, just to understand something, um, you know, all of the critics' hopes are hanging on this missing letter. Because if that m- missing letter was proven to be you know, if, if tomorrow they found the rest of the seal and confirmed it, then their hopes are dashed. And so they're, they're hanging. Well, we don't know what that is. They're hanging all their hopes on this, on this letter that's, that's on this whatever that could be um, from, from the seal. But, but here's the problem. Uh, in the books of Second Kings and Isaiah, there are 16 different verses that present Hezekiah and Isaiah together. Well, kings are written by the kings. Obviously, the they're, they're accounts of the kings in Isaiah is written by Isaiah. And, and so both Isaiah and the Chronicles of the Kings, um, or the books of the kings, not really the Chronicles, but the, the uh, Chronicles was written by Ezra later. But uh, both here Hezekiah's record and according to Isaiah's, they both had an affinity for each other because they both mention each other in their, in their histories. They were together uh, numerous times. So even without that missing letter on that, on that seal, uh, to find two seals within ten feet of each other, one bearing the name of Hezekiah and one the name of Isaiah, we know that that is the seal of Isaiah. And what that does is that confirms Isaiah's place in history um, time-wise with Hezekiah and therefore it confirms that these things are prophetic. So it's just a little, a little teeny tiny discovery, uh, but it confirms the biblical record as being written when it was written. And that is extremely important. Uh, by the way, that discovery was in the year 2015. And so as I say, we're always discovering new things, and every time we discover something, it just shores up the evidence of, of what we already know. Let's go to the next one here. This is something called the Moabite stone. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 3 describes a rebellion of the Moabites under uh, a king by the name of Misha uh, against Israel and Judah. By that time they were divided uh, and so uh, so this king he rebels um, and Misha uh, was the uh, was, uh being the king of moab uh the the bible depicts numerous times the god of this this land Moab, or these people, the moabites uh as um Worshipping a god by the name of Kamosh. Okay? Um, So, uh, Moab, by the way, are the descendants of Lot through one of his daughters. Um, uh, So, we know that story. Just so so we understand who we're talking about. Uh, And so, the king of Israel, uh, who largely figures in the story uh, more than Judah, is the guy by the name of Jehoram. So um, so, there's this back and forth between the two. Um, one gains the upper hand at some point, and then the rebellion is eventually put down. So now this Moabite stone depicts this exact battle. Of course, it's written from a different perspective, so it's going to differ from the Bible. You know, when when two people kind of never completely subdue the other one, uh, so so that it's. You know, over and done with. There's a history, and both sides write their history, and they both write it to be um, favorable to their side. You know, to save face or whatever. So, so the Moabite, um, uh, where the Bible predicts the, or or uh, depicts the outcome of this, uh, the Moabite stone kind of emphasizes along the way the the. Uh, some of the cities they took and the people they killed and the various things like that. Never really getting to the outcome of it. But it's it's written to be favorable to Moab. And um, this stone was uh, discovered in 1870. And it's, it's confirmed the Bible. Now what you see is broken. Um, it was discovered completely whole. And I believe it's the lighter pieces here that are original and the darker ones. What happened, fortunately... Before uh, it was broken uh, by the Muslim people who were in charge of it, uh, and I, I forget what group was holding it hostage or ransom or whatever, uh, hoping for money, and then when they didn't get it, they, they, they broke it. But before that, um, that was in the 1900s, I think, but uh, uh, someone had basically made a, a cast of it, a papier-mâché cast, uh, and so they were able to duplicate the text pretty accurately um, and and so when they finally got the fragments, um, they were able to to put together what you see here uh, and it 's now i believe in France um, so anyway um, so they discovered this, and they they get to work translating it, and they find that it confirms the the basic storyline, even with some different details. Um, The details that are confirmed is, uh, what's really interesting, is not just Jehoram's name um, is mentioned in here um, as the king of Israel. But also, uh, if we remember the stories of the the differences in the in Israel and Judah, Judah had one line of kings all the way through. But but Israel had uh, you know beginning with Jeroboam, uh, a number of different families that ruled as kings. They would rule for so long, uh, and, and it's because of God had made a promise to David that he his uh, his family would sit on the throne until. Christ. And, um, but he had not made that promise with northern Israel. And so when they got too bad, God would say, All right, you're too bad, and we're going to cut you off, and I'm going to start with a new king. And so that, that happened numerous times uh, throughout uh, Israel's history. And the head of Jehoram's, or the beginning of his, I guess, dynasty, if you will, uh, was a guy by the name of Omri. And this uh, what they call the Misha Steel or the Moabite Stone correctly calls uh, Jehoram by his by his uh, dynastic name, the Jehoram of of Omri, who is and the Bible confirms this that the Omri is the beginning of this uh, of of that particular family of kings. So that is a, a confirmation of the Bible. The uh, Bible. Uh, or the Moabite stone, it confirms the Bible uh, in in the name of Misha as the king of Moab. It confirms the Moabite deity as Chemosh. Right? He, and so throughout this whole thing, he said in the name of Chemosh, I did this. And It also depicts, uh, it is the earliest non-biblical reference to the God of the Jews, the Hebrew deity, which is Jehovah. So it, it references Jehovah. Of course, he depicts uh, Chemosh as, as being superior to Jehovah, uh, which is what we'd expect for a pagan uh, to, to do that. It uh, does confirm the reason why uh, God wanted these people wiped out. Um, way long time ago, we we look at them and we, why did God want so many people to be killed? Why was it, why was that such an important, I mean, it's one of the things we have a hard time wrapping our minds around, and God always does this because uh, when we look at the peoples of those times, they they believed in human sacrifice, and, and it was so offensive to God, that human sacrifice. Well, in this deal here is depicted, he, he talks about one just one particular city that he had defeated. It was probably a border city that went back and forth between Israel and moab and he killed seven thousand men just with the sword, but he said we didn 't kill the women and children, those were going to be devoted, those we devoted to Chemosh. in other words, those were sacrificed so so the remaining People of this particular city were taken alive and sacrificed an entire city or half of an entire city, or maybe two thirds of a city by population, you know without minus the men the the women and children that remain uh, you, We could be talking about fifteen twenty thousand people sacrificed to a god. Uh, this is why, and that 's just one city. This is why God wanted those people exterminated. Uh, and wiped off the face of the earth. Um, there is one difficult reference um, in, the, uh, in the weathering of this stone. Um, there is a name, and it's difficult. For one, they didn't have vowels back then. And and so with the writing it's very difficult to decipher. It is either the name of David refers to the house of David or the house of Balak. Either way, um another biblical name is confirmed um in this in this uh steel. It's uh again an, another fact, uh an obscure and what's really amazing about this is that In the history of of things, you know, as far as biblical history, this event in Second Kings chapter three is such a small event. It's it's, we're not talking about the flood. We're not talking about uh, the Exodus. We're not talking about creation. We're not talking about any one of David's major battles. We're talking about some obscure battle that happened, you know. uh, just during the period of time, some, some obscure rebellion that was put down, or whatever, between two kings, and yet here it is in detail. Someone thought it was important to write it down. It must have been the most significant thing that happened to Misha, so he was going to leave his, you know, record for his posterity and how great he was. But uh, it was a big deal to him. But in the in the history of the world, this is an insignificant battle in an ins- insignificant location, and and yet. The Bible said it, and here is a statement uh, probably thought to be incorrect or just you know, a fairy tale until 1870 uh, when you, the, the, the details of the story are confirmed um, as it's written in the Bible. Again, a small thing. And I, so I included a couple of small ones. I want to get to a couple of big ones here. City of Jericho. You're looking at here. This is the picture, uh, a picture taken from the the north side of it. Um, look, you're looking south, um, and we know the story of Jericho, the first city Joshua encountered in conquest of Palestine after crossing the Jordan. They were to march around it for seven days. Uh, on the last day, they would march around seven times. Um, if you're if you ever thought that you know that would be impossible to march around a city seven times, understand that uh, as you can see, there are cities not so much like our cities uh this is not you know you couldn't march around um Waukesha you know seven times on a day you know to go around the city uh that that would be physically impossible even if you sprinted um, so We look at this, uh, the distance around, if you marched directly, you can even see, I mean, basically you can see here the walls, where where the walls would have been. It's just stark, where it comes straight up out of the the land around it. And um, that border, if you walked right next to that border, which they probably didn't for fear of people throwing stuff down at them, um, you would walk a half a mile. Uh, it, in total circumference, just under half a mile. So if you walked uh, about 250 feet away, just to make sure you were out of shot of, you know, uh, 300 feet away, it turns into about a mile. Um, so probably, um, you know, quite possible to do. So they were to march around it for seven times that last day, and then it fell. And as the first city was being conquested in, in the Promised Land, they were not to take the spoils of war, they were to burn everything inside the city. We also know the story of Rahab uh, and her being, you know, in, in assisting them. She was a prostitute. Uh, she, the Bible depicts her as living in a house uh, that was built into the walls uh, of this city. And that she would be, she would hang a cord out the window, and uh, they would see that as they approached the city and rescue her, uh, and and then take the city. It talks about them going up into the city, which is interesting. Uh, as you can see there, they it just comes straight up out of flatland. The city, and so it was easily defendable, uh, and and so they had to climb up, which makes it difficult. Uh, Jericho was a a Daunting city. Even now, it just looks like a big pile of dirt. But but if you imagine that as a as a well-defendable city, you can see how that would be intimidating for people to to try to attack and why you know they go back and like I don't know about doing this here. So this was thought like many, to be just a myth, a story that's a myth and didn't even know if Jericho existed. In 1868, a guy by the name of Charles Warren began excavating. He was so unimpressed with this. He just, I guess I'll excavate here. He never did complete anything. Um, He he dug, he was so not expecting to find anything. He actually dug through walls uh, there, Uh, He couldn't differentiate. He was not really painstaking or detailed uh, and didn't differentiate between the clay of the ground and some of the bricks that had been turned into clay, dug straight through walls, uh, not even realizing what he was encountering, just kind of dug away at it. Um, It wasn't until he ended up giving up and somebody else in in the 1900s uh, began, uh, late 1800s and then into the 1900s, uh, There have been a number of digs, and they've really found some interesting things. So um, what they've found is, well, the structure of the city is what you're looking at here. Now, I'll give you a couple of pictures of this. Um, What you're looking at is a, a retaining wall. Uh, and here's the diagram, kind of to help you see. So what you're looking at there is the the rocks are a retaining wall. Now if you you can't quite see it because of the angle, but uh, behind there you see a second row of rocks and things. And so so there was two walls actually, um, a wall and then another wall behind that. Uh, and then on that that first wall is about 15 to 20 feet or 13 to 15 feet, rather, high. And then on top of that was were, were the actual walls of the city on top of the retaining wall. Um, so making a total of about 45 feet, if you were going to try to scale that, um, well, and, and being a thick wall, it was easily defendable from the top, so, so no one was just going to climb up over that. No army was going to especially a vagabond army uh, that's you know, been marching around, um, you know, through a desert. They're, they're not trained for war. they're not this great conquering force. And so uh, it's clear that God was going to have to help them do something. So um, the ground level was just prohibitive. Uh, here's another picture. Uh, now you can see that from a different angle. And what happened, which the Bible says that, uh, that he was going to do this, that the, the walls were going to fall flat, or, uh, which is not what you would depict. If you were going to assault, even if you had siege engines or whatever, you, were going to, you had superior technology and you were going to attack a, a wall, it would be It would fall in, which would then still give the problem of trying to get up um, and still being vulnerable from behind that second wall. but what they found in excavating is red brick, which is what the 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 actual structures on top of the retaining wall were made of, and you can see that from from this angle this is more this is basically the same spot in the wall, but from a side picture is all and this goes almost all the way around the city that uh, on both walls up at uh, up on top, the interior wall, and then this external wall, that these walls have fallen down and made a nice slope that's very easy to climb up to uh, and into the city. Well, that's kind of what's depicted in, uh, in the Bible, is the walls just falling, uh, God divinely intervening so that this incredible fortified city could be taken with very little problems, here we see a picture of the double walled houses. these are I, I, I imagine these have been restored uh, but even still, you see that that they're not really that high, just they've just given you basically a floor plan of the houses between these two walls um, at, at, or at least in this particular section I, they I don't think they did this all the way around the city they've just excavated part of it. So, um, but you can clearly see a double wall with houses, where the Bible says this is what it was like. Uh, right off in the distance, you can see the road. So it's, this is right close to the edge. And this is not inside the city. On um, uh, here in, in this picture. Um, you might not understand what you're seeing there. And that circular thing in the middle, and there's a lot of these uh, that have been excavated, is a, it's a tipped over pot. Um, and inside that pot are, is grain. Uh, and they found a lot of these, um, these pots of grain, which shows us a couple of things. First of all, grain was incredibly valuable. Uh, when you would, I mean, you, you, If if you've been attacking a city and you you want... Grain is incredibly valuable. But not only grain, but they found pots of grain, they found uh, utensils, they found all sorts of things in this uh, archaeological discovery which shows that they did not take spoils of war. In fact, um, the... The, there is a, a layer of black burnt on to a lot, of, and in a lot of these places, that in, inside the city, showing that they burnt it uh, and didn't take it. Uh, the, but there's char on everything, and not only are they uh, are, are there pots of grain, but there are full pots of grain, and and and. Well, what is significant about that is a full pot of grain shows you that there was not a long siege. The Bible basically depicts this as a seven-day siege. They were not allowed to go out to their uh, fields for seven days. So, so most of the stuff that they had stored you know, following a harvest has been untouched. And because it's only lasted seven days before it was destroyed, they didn't really have time to get too far into the reserves that they had saved up for the year. Uh, And that's exactly what we should find. Well, what we find is what we should find, which shouldn't be surprising because the Bible is true. One more picture. This is the north side of the city again. And this is the only section of the outside wall which is still standing. Everything else has been leveled. And this is uh, the only standing section. Now, you know, thousands of years have gone between then and now. But how interesting is it that the Bible says, well, there's going to be one person saved out of this whole, this whole destruction of this city. Uh, she lives in a wall on the outside of, of this city, uh and uh and here is a wall which has not fallen part of this this outside structure that hasn't fallen i i i would say with great conviction that i am probably looking at Rahab's house you're you're looking at where uh you know Joshua and Caleb where they snuck in and out of uh, in, in giving their reports and uh, it's it just to me, again and again, the Bible gets confirmed. Uh, not, not, and, and again, this is this. What's crazy is that this was thought to be completely myth, and and it's found. Uh, this guy was just not expecting it because of the, their bias. Uh, in fact, the person that did most of the work on this and um, discovering this and and unearthing it still remains an atheist, or remained an atheist. Uh, she discovered it, uh, Catherine Kenyon, I believe was her name, uh, that did a lot of this work, and, and she, was, she remained an atheist although, and couldn't accept it, and it's this bias against the Bible that kept people from interpreting things correctly and, and not even expecting this, that this would be here. Well, but it's right where the Bible says it was, right across the Jordan, right, right where we should find it. It's right there. Another one, almost like that, and this is to me one of the greatest ones in terms of Bible archaeology, and uh, we'll try to get through this pretty fast here, I know we're going to be a little bit over time, uh, but is the story of Nineveh. We know the story of Jonah and Nineveh, and um, obviously stories of men being swallowed by fish are hard to imagine, but but also the idea of Nineveh being destroyed, uh, Nineveh would be like modern-day United States. It was, it was stronger than Babylon. It was, it was the greatest empire at the time up until Babylon. Um, it's an ancient city. It's one of the most ancient cities. It's built by, um, by a guy by the name of Nimrud. and uh, just, just an amazing city, huge. Now here's a picture of it being right on the. Tigris, which makes for a nice picture, unfortunately, it was located about a half a mile away from, or three-quarters of a mile away from the Tigris, so it didn't quite look like that. Uh, but here you can see on this map it's how far it is away. Uh, it's located about 400 miles north of Babylon. And so they were, you know, rival uh, rival cities or empires within what's now Iraq. It was a notoriously wicked and violent city. Um, it narrowly escaped destruction around 750 BC when Jonah prophesied to it. It is a huge city. Uh, so here's a map of it. We'll come back to this, and and uh, if you can't see it right away, I will now the outline of the walls probably brings that out. Now you can quite clearly see it. Uh, it is huge it, it it dwarfs other ancient cities i mean it 's small by today 's comparison but but it was three miles uh long north to south, one mile wide. The Bible tells us that Jonah got a day day into it and said all right that 's it i've given you enough and i 'm going home uh, so um, so he uh so he left and they they listened and um we know the story this Bible tells us of Sennacherib, who attacked Hezekiah, forced him to pay tribute following that setback Sennach, uh, 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 you know eventually they rebelled against uh, uh, Assyria and kind of were a little successful and Sennacherib returned to Assyria, uh, probably to plan another a, a assault on it, but he never got to do that because he was assassinated by his sons um, Well, a little bit after that, Babylon attacks um, a guy by the name of Ashurbanipal of Assyria and destroys it in 612 BC. Zephaniah and Nahum are our big, uh, well, Zephaniah just has a a quick reference to the destruction of Nineveh, but Nahum, the book of Nahum is entirely devoted to the downfall of Nineveh. And there are so many pictures, and I'm not even going to scratch the surface of the pictures that are confirmed by the archaeological uh, excavations. Um, We could do a whole class just on Nineveh and the the different pictures that Nahum gives us. But he does tell us that a siege would be brought against it. It would be overthrown. Um, The Bible shows that a flood was going to be involved in it, that it would never return as a city. Um, and, and in this whole thing, we have a confirmation and the discovery of Jonah. You know, there are people that thought that the nation of Assyria was completely made up, that that for the longest time because it just didn't exist anywhere. Well, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says it was going to disappear. And people say, what? The? You know, imagine like the United States. You know, a couple hundred years from now, people thinking, well, the United States never existed. That's how, you know how flattened it was and how uh, how barren it was following uh, its attack that that people thought that the United States was a figment of imagination that could have never existed we couldn't imagine that but that's assyria and, and by the time that that uh, I mean even in uh, people in, in Christ's time historians they still I mean it was close enough to them in time that they knew that assyria had existed but they look at where it was and and they're like, wow, this is this is crazy, uh, that that something it, it's completely gone. It is completely gone, and so as as history and and nature took over the land, uh, it became so barren that that people really they would walk across this this piece of land and not even know what it was until they started excavating somewhere and started finding some things, uh, nineteen. Uh, they They began um excavating uh in eighteen forty two there were two mounds that they started excavating didn 't know what they were really um, they did know that one of them well we 'll get to one of the the other one in just a second but uh, at the same time as or actually no a little after they were excavating in Babylon, they found some uh, uh they found some records, and here's a picture of what they call ABC th- uh, 3, which is the Assyrian Babylonian Chronicles, and this is the third one that they found. And it depicts um, this this attack of uh, Babylon against Assyria. Um, and it gives some, some great details uh, that confirm. Uh, now, there's a little bit of a difference between different accounts. This account which is Babylon's and a guy by the name of Diodorus, who is a Greek historian, he, he recounted that there was a two year siege, and the Babylonian chronicles um, uh, give a three month siege. There is a little difference between two months and three year or two years and three months, but there was an initial siege which wasn't very successful by Babylon is what kind of in harmonizing these and then Babylon got some help from three other nations, um, and that began in earnest. And they they attacked. Well, the siege was very difficult because, as you can see, off of the Tigris is this river called the Kosa River, and it goes right through it. And because of the sheer size of this place, they were able to grow crops inside of their of their territory, and so so it, it made it very difficult to conduct the siege. They've got water, and they've got um, they've got land to grow stuff in. And I mean this is city was three si- times the size of any other ancient city. So so it's it's you know this is unprecedented. Well, what they decided to do, what Babylon decided to do is to they right here at the Tigris where you can see right here they they dammed it up. And what that did uh was force it slowed down the water, but it backed up the river. When it backed up the river, it also backed up this tributary to it, and, um, and it broke apart the walls. It just kind of like it softened the walls of the gate, and the gate fell into this thing. And, and, and that's what the Bible depicts being carried away in a flood. Uh, and so they just waltzed into the city. Uh, by the way, on Google Maps, if you go down to it, you can still see the floodplain here, right here. So um, now some people think that that floodplain was there actually deliberately put there to try to um, keep somebody from, from being able to do this to the city walls. Um, either case, uh, it illustrates that the Bible accuracy, the, how this how this great nation fell, that a flood was involved in it, um, and its complete destruction. Um, so we, we go to these mounds. Now, the north and south are uh, a little bit different um, uh, uh, as far as this river. The north part of this uh, city is where all the stuff happened. Um, That's where your temples are. That's where your, or were, that's where your palaces were. That is still um, uninhabited. You can see that there are dwellings in the southern part, and I'll come to that in just a second. Because, uh, wait a minute, the Bible says it was never going to be inhabited again. It's being inhabited and uh, things like that. Well, It doesn't technically say that it's uninhabited. It just says it's not coming back as a city, which it hasn't. There is a city there, but right here, this mound I want to get to, because even before, they discovered this in the, in the 1800s, the mid-1800s, but they were not allowed to, the, the local populace would not let them go into this mound to excavate until like the 1920s. Uh, it was referred to as Nebi Yunus. Nebi Yunus means uh, is, is the mound or, or shrine of, of Jonah, is what it means. Uh, it was revered as a, a holy site even to Muslims. Uh, so, now, I don't know if, if he was buried there. It's, it's claimed that, that this was his tomb. Uh, I don't know if, if, this, if he was actually buried there, um, you know we don't know what happened to Jonah. the Bible just leaves us I mean it's certainly possible. The Bible leaves us with him sitting outside of the city uh, waiting for for this thing to fall apart and and that's that's where we we leave uh, Jonah so it's it's quite possible. I don't know did he just sit there till he died? I don't know but um, anyway, uh, he's buried there according to to them, whether he is or not. The fact that his name thousands of years later by these people is associated with this mound is impressive, especially when considering that the rest of the world thought that this place was a fictional work, that it never even existed because it's so absent in terms of uh, of any evidence in the archaeological record. It's just no one knew that this was here. Um... So it stands as a testament whether or not his actual burial was there or not. This place was, was Nineveh, and Jonah was a real figure uh, in, this, um, in this history. Now, is there a city there now? Yes, the, there's a city. It started really across the Tigris. It's the city of Mosul. Uh, you've heard of it. It's it's been destroyed numerous times and attacked. And it was, you know, in 2014 it was held by ISIS. They did, did a lot of destruction to this. Uh, but what's happened is is um, there is a minority of, of basically very poor people, um, the Kurdish people, if you've heard of that, and uh, in Mosul the. There's even racism, I guess, over there. So they forced the Kurdish people to to dwell in in this part, this lower part. It's so, uh and it was almost completely destroyed uh, by ISIS. They they broke apart the city gates that had been restored. They uh, they totally trashed the Nebi Yunus and, and uh, defaced everything. Um, they're trying to rebuild it and. Um, you know, restore it, but uh, they're basically restoring a restoration already. But the, it has never come back as a city, uh, and that's what God predicted. It is gone. What, what you have is the is a a poverty stricken group of outcasts so, of the Kurdish people, forced to live in this in this particular location just because the spread of Mosul. But the rest of it, it, Mosul has grown around Nineveh, and, and for, the, for the most part, Nineveh uh, is left alone. Uh, so, so all these things, it's just so impressive, the archaeological record, again and again, uh, shown to be accurate when the Bible says something. So we can trust it. Um, and it does give us confidence to trust the things uh, that the Bible says. Uh, Because they're not simply um, man's opinions of what happened. Uh, But they are God guiding the pens of, of people.